0: How are we doing? If you didn't fill out a prayer request card, you can do that at your discretion. Fill out a prayer request card, drop it at the welcome counter in the back box when you leave, or you can do it online, and uh, we'd love to pray for you during the week. Hope everyone had a great week, enjoyed themselves, had a great Easter. Uh, I know we've all had our stuff. So like last week, how how many got a hydrangea when you left? Congrats. Um, You know, traditionally, we get Easter lilies at Easter and poinsettias at Christmas. And then um, um, I give them away. And so last week, we had hydrangeas, and they were beautiful. And so I gave them away. And right after the service, my wife comes in, and I see this, like, look on her face. Like, but it wasn't just a general look. It was a look at me. Like, this kind of look. Now, I generally do things that I know I'm not supposed to do and get in trouble for them, so I know what this look means. This day, I had no clue. Honestly, it's Easter. It's been a good morning. Things are wonderful. And so, afterwards, she says to me, you gave away the hydrangeas. I go, yeah, I always give away the plants. Well, we talked about it. And this year we were going to buy them and plant all of them around the church and beautify the church. And I said, well, it would be helpful if someone told the senior pastor uh, what, we're, what the plan was. Uh, so enjoy your hydrangeas. Somewhere in the fall of 2016, an an online news news organization called BuzzFeed started noticing that there were hundreds, literally, 140 to 150 articles of made-up news stories that were suddenly coming across Facebook. And they were obviously made up, but they were becoming very popular and very well-read. So BuzzFeed did a report uh, about where these stories are coming from, who's generating these stories. And what they discovered was that about 140 stories had generated out of a small village in Macedonia called Veles, Macedonia, a city of about 45,000. And this group of older teenagers had found that if they made up these stories and put them on Facebook, they could monetize them, people would share them, and then they would start making money. They also learned that the more outrageous the story, uh, the, the better. And they also found just a breeding ground of easy false stories for English-speaking people around the world to read that either had something to do with Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. So you remember, it was the 2016 election, and they're making cash off making up Stories, So BuzzFeed, um, they coined the term, and it probably had been around, but they're the first to really have published the term called fake news in their article. Well, in January or February 2017, uh, then-president Donald Trump was asked a question by a CNN news reporter, which he quickly labeled as fake news. And from that moment on, he also used it in some tweets that came up. And from that moment on, just think about it, it's really only been four years. If you think about January or February of 2017 to where we are today, the term fake news has become a part of our vernacular. It's in our vocabulary. We, we say it, we know it, we think about it, uh, we, we, we've seen it. Honestly, fake news is not all that new. Isn't it funny that new is not new, fake news? Just hang with me. Um, in the Garden of Eden, did not fake news just kind of trap us all? When the serpent said, did God really say? And almost immediately Eve responds, oh, God, well, here's what God said. And if you read what she says that God said, you'll notice that it's, Mostly true, but also off. And honestly, some of the best fake news is close enough to the truth where it hits a point, but then it is slightly off. And many times we don't know where it's slightly off, we just feel it or sense it, but there's some sort of um, thing that I'm kind of ringing up here, Randy, if you could help me a little bit. Um, There's some sort of thing that's close enough to it that we don't know what, how to label it. I find it especially true in the church that we have these things that are close to the truth, but there's a sense of error in them that then colors everything and changes everything. Jesus, to the religious leaders of his day, and remember, the religious leaders of his day knew more about the word of God than anybody else around. And to them, Jesus says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And yet, they would say, no, we know them better than anyone. We can quote them, we can say them, But there's a difference between knowing and knowing, right? There's a difference between knowing and it be a part of you, being in your heart. Last week was Easter and one of the accounts on that first Resurrection Sunday has to do with two guys who have left Jerusalem and are traveling outside of town. And as they're traveling, they're talking. And as they're talking, they're trying to recount the events of the weekend. It has been a monumental weekend. And suddenly a third man appears with them and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And one of the two original guys says, sarcastically, I think, this is my translation did you just crawl out from under a rock? (laughs) I thought that was, that's funny if you think about it later. But did you just, um, where have you been? Have you not just been in Jerusalem and heard everything that happened? He says, well, tell me about it. Picking up in the book of Luke, he says about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, I want you to notice, I'll come back to this in a second, but I underlined that part. But we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They go on. So they're talking about Jesus and they're talking about the resurrection. There are a couple of things they get. They're, they're, they're mostly right. But at the same time, they miss the fact we thought he might be the Messiah. And he, his body was not there. They're not recalling all that had taken place. Now, one of these guys, we know his name is Cleopas. Uh, Some people speculate that Cleopas is the same one who's listed in the Gospel of John named Clopas, who was the uncle, actually, of Jesus, the the brother of Mary. And so it's not like, if this is true, it's not like this guy is far away. He was at the foot of the cross, maybe. He was with, he's related to Jesus, his uncle, and he, he doesn't even recognize what's going on. In other words, I think there's an aspect of news that they're reporting that's close enough, but it misses the whole point. Jesus says, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What an incredible Bible story, huh? I mean, Bible study where Jesus opens up the scriptures and teaches them all. How long a walk was this? Right? All that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. They then invite him for dinner. They still don't recognize who this third man is. The resurrected body of Jesus, there's some sort of, I mean, if indeed this is his uncle, let's just say it is, if indeed it is his uncle, that he wouldn't recognize his nephew who's standing right there. There's something about the resurrection body of Jesus that's the same but different. Different enough they didn't recognize him. And they're walking along and then they invite him to dinner He sits down and when he breaks the bread and prays over the bread, he's suddenly gone. Now we start thinking, this is so weird. Where'd he go? I mean, how did he disappear? I'm not going to get into the resurrection body. There's something the same but different about resurrection life. But then they recognize this was Jesus. This was him. This was the resurrected Christ. And they even say, we're not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Later, that same evening, really, almost immediately. Now, they're about seven miles, evidently, from Jerusalem. Emmaus, they're on the road to Emmaus. They're some miles away. And They've just had dinner, so it's close to evening time. That same evening, he appears in the upper room with the disciples and says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Here's my point through going through all of this. We are a church that embraces fully the word of God, and the spirit of god and it's not a 50-50 proposition it's not like oh we're going to take 50% of understanding the word of god and 50% of the holy spirit and we get 100 no it's it's we have to fully embrace these two mighty streams of god the word and the spirit so we walk in life we avoid error As I've said many times in the past, one without the other. Do you remember that story I tell all the time about my friend Donald Master preaching this sermon that he always preached? He would say, the word of God without the spirit of God and you dry up. The spirit of God without the word of God and you blow up. But the word of God and the spirit of God combined together, you grow up. And we want to be a people who fully embrace the Word of God and the Spirit of God so that we walk in fullness life together. Unfortunately, over years, and even currently, the church seems to me at various points to have adopted some ways of thinking. Even though we may know the Scripture well, without the Spirit of God, it doesn't really we're not understanding the life that is there. We need the Spirit of God to open up our minds so that we understand the scripture. And I think what I'm trying to say in this introduction, and this is just the introduction, so just hallelujah, um, is this, study of the word of God is awesome. We, we, We embrace it, but without the Spirit of God, To open up our minds to the understanding of the scripture, we can end up like the Pharisees or Sadducees who know the scripture but don't know it. At the same time, if we don't understand the word of God, then quickly the enemy can come in and sow seeds of misunderstanding where we would not be able to say, this is not God's word. So today, and in the weeks ahead, I thought it would be fun for us. You may not think it's as fun as I do. I thought it would be fun for us to look at some things that I've heard in church life over my ancient years, say different sayings. And here's what we're going to look at in the weeks ahead, okay? So that we're going to look at um, some, some fake news in the church, such as don't judge. That's not today, so don't get excited about God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> Obedience results in prosperity. God won't give you more than you can handle. And today, you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Just hang on. We'll get to each one each week. All right? So you're going to um, come back and have fun, assuming that... <laughs> I make it through today. Uh, And the one I want to do today is this. All suffering comes from sin. Some people believe that the reason we suffer is a result of sin. I was having dinner with Brad and Michelle the other night. Michelle gave me permission to use this story that when she was a little girl and if she stepped out from around a car and stepped into a mud puddle or into a thing of water, her dad would say to her, what did you do? to make this happen. Do you understand? What did you do? Well, I did, you, know, you just stepped out into a puddle, that's what I did. But the idea behind it is you must have done something wrong in order for this to occur in your life. Many of us have been in some way inundated with this teaching that the suffering I'm undergoing is a result of something that I did wrong. And is that not a place of guilt and shame and destructive to our overall, our overall thinking? Now, by the way, this is called retributive just, uh, suffering. It's justice that is a retribution for something that we've done. And this is not a new idea. It's as old, really, as the scriptures themselves. Many people believe that Job was the first book of the Bible actually written down, whether or not it was one of the early ones. So Job has been around for a long time, and Job is a book where he is undergoing suffering and he has these three friends who drop by to say, Job, what did you do wrong? Because if you didn't do something wrong, you wouldn't have been undergoing this suffering but you're undergoing this suffering because you did something wrong. And the entire book of Job is really a discussion about this idea of retribution, that suffering, suffering that comes through retribution. Now, let me say this. There's enough truth in this statement that we then struggle with it because all suffering doesn't come from sin, but really all suffering comes from sin. You're like, Wait a minute. Romans says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So in a sense, yes, all suffering comes from sin. And I'm talking about the macro, the big in general. Romans even says, all of creation groans for the redemption of mankind. In other words, everything is falling, all suffering, even plants, animals, everything in the world is suffering because of sin. So yes, all suffering comes from sin, but not all specific suffering comes from your specific sin. Here's one of these challenges that... I thought about stealing uh, all of uh, Gabriel's sermon from next week about prosperity, but I am going to try and leave him a couple of things to say. But good news, I get to go first, so he has to come. He has to just uh, go behind whatever I said. So Jesus said this: "I have told you these things. What things? He's told him about power of the Spirit. He's told him about prayer. He's told him about himself. He's told him about many things that are going to take place. And he says, i 'I've told you these things so that in so that in me you may have.'" Peace. In this world, you're going to have what? Trouble. Suffering. Trials. Well, that's quite the promise, ain't it? You know, it's not one we generally hang on to. You know what Jesus promised me? Trouble. How do I know if I'm walking with God? Trouble. How do I know if I'm on the right path? Trouble wait a minute that doesn't sound so good he goes on and says but take heart i have overcome the world and then paul later is going to say you are more than an overcomer why am i more than an overcomer because jesus already overcame he overcame i'm more than an overcomer But that doesn't mean I won't have troubles or trials or suffering. As a matter of fact, the promise of Jesus is I will. As if that's not enough, James comes back and says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials, troubles, sufferings of many kinds. When was the last time you sat down and said, Praise God, I'm suffering. I Praise God for this trial. Praise God for this trouble. This is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my trouble. The joy... You know, we don't sing that song, right? We don't go that way. Why? Because inherently something within us is still screaming at us, if I'm suffering, I must have sinned. We don't say it out loud, but something... Our first look at suffering is not many different aspects of it, but rather the aspect of sin. And by the way, some of your sin could actually lead to suffering. I mean, there is consequence of sin. So this, co- this idea of suffering, as a matter of fact, I, was, I didn't have time to do this, but I, was, I listed like six or seven different types of suffering I found. Various kinds, and we'll come to a couple of, them, couple of them at the end. But I want to talk to you about suffering this morning. Uh, this is not the message we generally get uh, at, at times in the church, but how many of you are undergoing trials? How many of you are undergoing troubles? How many of you are, you would say, I'm, I'm in a period of suffering. You don't have to raise your hand. More in this room than not are undergoing some trial or trouble or tribulation, some issue in their life. Let me share this with you. Let me give you some observations about suffering. Just some ideas from the Bible and from my own uh, understanding. First, suffering is everywhere. If indeed sin entered the world, and because of sin, we have this suffering, as Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. It's everywhere. In other words, here's what I want to say. You're not the only one. When you say, God, why me? It kind of is a self-centered suffering question. Because we all undergo suffering. It's everywhere. You may say, oh, Pastor Bard, you don't undergo suffering. You know, you really don't know me that well. If that's what you would say. I have my own trials, my own troubles, my own sufferings. I try to be transparent with you about a lot of them, but honestly, I don't tell you everything. What? You don't tell me everything? No, not really. Sorry. Malcolm Forbes once said, if you have a job without aggravations, you don't have a job. If you're looking for the perfect job or you don't have any troubles or that's the way it is with life. If you think you have a life without problems, you got no life. You're not alive. Because in this world, you will have troubles. Troubles are everywhere. The next point is this observation. Suffering doesn't just disappear. Hiding from it won't make it go away. Sometimes time does heal, but sometimes facing the trial, going through it, as we say, there's no way around it. There's no way to avoid it, but going through it to the other side is what we're going to see in the future. John Foster Dulles said the measure of success is not whether you have a tough problem to deal with, but whether it's the same problem you had last year. Thanks. Actually, John Foster Dulles said it. I'm just stealing. <laughs> but the issue is sometimes... If we don't head into the problem and face it, it's just gonna, it's gonna be there for us. We need to take care of it. I love that commercial. There's this commercial, and I was gonna try and find it and ran out of time, but there's this commercial about where they're trying to get people to sign up for the military. And they show these guys like dropping out of planes and heading into the storm rather than running away from the storm. And something about that picture always, that commercial, it really stirs me to say, we're not of those who shrink back. We are of those who press forward. And we do that even in the face of suffering. It doesn't just disappear. Also, we tend to lose perspective of suffering when it's our own. You know, it's the whole idea of major surgery versus minor surgery. You've heard this before, probably. Minor surgery is surgery that's done on someone else. Major surgery is anything done on me. That's the way we are. We think my suffering is really bad. Oh, this is horrible. This is terrible. Socrates once said, if all of our misfortunes were laid in one common heap... Where everyone must take an equal portion, most people would be contented to take their own and depart. In other words, he's saying, I think you can read it, he's saying, when it's all laid out, we say, uh, maybe I don't have it so bad. I'll just take my own little bit. But we lose perspective of our own suffering. And. Uh, just one last observation about suffering our perspective on suffering not the suffering itself determines our success or failure in other words you're gonna have suffering and it's not whether you do or not you will it's your perspective on it that's gonna help determine the course of your your path so why suffering Why this idea of what is the outcome of suffering? What does suffering produce in our lives? Why do we have to go through this kind of suffering? By the way, these are really good points. You may want to write them down. Because if you're not undergoing suffering today, just wait till tomorrow. Or wait till Tuesday or Wednesday. Some point you're going to, and you're like, this this will help you. And I'm going to be reading primarily from the book of James, James chapter 1, where he says, Consider pure joy, my brothers, when you undergo trials of many kinds. And then he's going to go through that. So this is really James 1: 1, 1 through 12, that I'm going to read from you and give you some observations about suffering. You're like, well, sorry, 11 o'clock. He's just getting to the sermon. <laughs> Hallelujah, let's go. First thing is, suffering develops character. Suffering develops character. He says in James 1, verses 2 through 4, Dear brothers and sisters, whenever trouble comes your way, let it be an opportunity for joy. For when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. And when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you undergo trials of trouble, suffering of many kind. Why? Because when your faith is tested through these sufferings, your endurance has a chance to grow. I won't, I won't talk about running, but let's just say we did. If you're going to be a runner and learn to run, to become to endure, the only way to do it is to actually run. The only way to get better at it and to build endurance is through the pain of actually running. And... and I've gotten to the place, I'm kind of struggling these days as I get older. And, but I love running now. But I guarantee you, when you first go out and start running, you're not going to love it. If you don't take it easy and kind of build into it, as a matter of fact, you'll quit. Because it's so painful to start it up. And you don't start off by just going out, I'm going to go run five miles today. Good luck with that. Now, there are some people in here who are genetically predisposed who could go out and run a couple of miles without being in any kind of practice. But 99% of us, 99.9% of us, no. You're going to have to work up to it. It's the same thing. God is working on our character. God is building character within us. How does God build character within us? According to James and if you don't like James, let's read Paul. Paul says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. I've talked about this spiral of hope many times. We start off at a position of hope. What do we get? In this world, you will have trouble. Suffering. What is suffering? Going through suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces even more hope. We go. You're going to keep going through this spiral, and I hate. I'm not going to say cycle or because you don't end up at the same place. If you go through it, I think you end up at a, even more hope. Your faith grows within you. And you develop more and more character. Here's one of the things I I really... I've, I've tried to instill this in my children. And I've tried to preach this to us over the many years. And it's that God is concerned about your character. We think it's not just about getting you saved, so to speak. Your sins are forgiven Jesus is your Lord, that's great news. And guess what? You're going to heaven. More great news. But in between, God is concerned about developing your character. Why else would we go through this spiral over and over again? Paul Bilheimer, one of my favorite books called Destined for the Throne, said God is willing to be misunderstood in the universe he has made in order to achieve his purpose of character development. He's willing for us to not understand who he is. And he says, when, when we're ready for the throne, God will have a throne ready for us. Uh, it, it, it's an idea of not works, but rather it's, an, it, it's a truth about how much God loves you and wants you to develop your character. All right, here we go. I'm going to move on because there are other things that suffering does. It also protects power. Suffering protects power. Now, think about this one for a minute, especially as Gabriel preaches on prosperity and other things next weekend. He says, back in James, if you need wisdom, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him and he will gladly tell you. He will not resent your asking. We love this passage. If any among us lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he'll give freely to those who ask. But look what James goes on and says. He says, but when you ask him, I'm going to ask for wisdom, right? He said, but when you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to answer. For a doubtful mind is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. People like that should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. They can't make up their minds, they waver back and forth in everything they do. Suffering protects power. So here's the idea. If suffering is developing your character, right? Then it's also protecting power. You pray for power. I pray for power. We want power, the power of God. I've used this illustration before, but um, l- let's say we had the golden, we had the goldens up here and uh, your oldest daughter is named again. Ele- Eleanor. Let's say that Andrew says to Eleanor, Oh, Eleanor, guess what I bought you today? I bought you a car. I didn't just buy you any car. I bought you a new Mustang, most powerful car. It can hardly be driven on the road. It's so powerful. Go ahead, sweetie, take a spin. Now, you and I would, we look at that and we say, well, that's not only, that's ridiculous. It's dangerous. The the man should be arrested for giving a, a, a child that kind of power. You and I, at times, we cry out for power, but we're no more mature than Eleanor. How is God going to develop character in our lives so that he can entrust us with his power? I think what James is saying is, you ask for wisdom, but you're not going to get it. Because your mind is like here and there and blown around. You have no character. And the suffering that God considered, this is all in the same passage in James. He's saying, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you're going to go trials of many kinds. Why? Because God does want to share his wisdom with you. He wants to give his power to you. The problem is he can't trust you with it because tomorrow you're going to be like flitty all over the place. Because you have no, you've not developed the character in order to receive the power that God has for you. But God wants to give it to you. He wants to trust you. So what's he going to do? He's going to allow you to undergo suffering in order that your character can be developed so that you can have more hope and he can reveal his wisdom and power to you. Watchman Nee once said this, we seldom learn anything new about God except through adversity, through suffering, through problems. I'm I'm reading through the Old Testament right now again, and I'm on Saul, David, that whole deal. Saul, and by the way, I think the Bible is full of examples of this. People who get power before their character is ready to handle it. Saul is one of those. He looked good, mighty warrior, but he had some deep problems. And as a result, he couldn't handle the power that God gave him. David gets anointed king. He goes through anywhere from seven to 14 years of God's suffering school in order to develop his character enough that God could entrust him with power. And David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. I mean, how many times do we say, oh, it was good for me? Nobody in the middle of it generally says, oh, this is good. This is good what God's doing in my life. I'm loving the suffering thing. Only afterwards can we many times get perspective. If you want to read a whole story about premature promotion and what happens when someone gets power without character go read the prodigal son i mean jesus tells a whole story about a, a kid who comes and, give me my inheritance now give me give me give me like a two-year-old three-year-old i want it now this father says okay here it is and what does he do he didn't have the character he hasn't seen dave ramsey's course he doesn't know what financial freedom looks like. He has no emergency fund. He has no, you know, he has none of that. He just goes, out. whoa, I've got the money. I'm going to go eat, drink, and be married. Why? Because I think what happens in our lives many times is maturity comes through suffering. Suffering develops character. Suffering protects power. And I believe also that suffering will purify us. It purifies the church. It purifies the followers of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the man. This is verse 12 of James 1. Again, I'm going through. I skipped a verse here and there, but you can read it all. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You might be saying, well, what does this have to be, do to purifying the church? Again, going back to Bill uh, destined for the throne idea. God is in the process of purifying the church. Blessed is the man, How do we persevere? We persevere under trial and suffering, why? Because when we've stood the test, we've understood it, there's a purity that comes from it that God is promising to receive a crown of life. So now here's the difficulty. I know if you're gonna fall in the ditch on the other side and say, okay, what Pastor Bart is suddenly preaching is a works mentality, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. No, 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 I'm not trying to say that. I'm saying, though, that at times, suffering comes into our lives in order that our character can be developed, that power can be protected and then released in us, and purification can come, because that's what God desires in our lives, Paul. Well, Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, I'm giving it to Paul, but um, whoever wrote Hebrews said this, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I know there's an aspect of eschatology with this passage, but I think there's also an aspect of todayness with this passage. That God is shaking in order that which cannot be shaken remains in my life. He's purifying my life. He's purifying your life. He's developing these things in us. Rejoice. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you undergo trials of many kinds. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. To me, to me, this is my take. We too easily think God saved us. I don't have to do anything. Life's going to be, you know, now I'm going to go to heaven. That's what happened. I got saved, going to heaven. Saved, going to heaven. All of which is good news and all of which is true. But God's got so much more for you. He wants to entrust you with His power in this earth. He wants you to be His kingdom representative, His ambassador to the world around us. He wants to entrust you with His very wisdom. You have the mind of Christ. He wants to see it unleashed in your life and in your your, your dealings with people. He he wants to allow the spiritual gifts to flow through you to touch the world around you. But in order for him to release some measure of power in your life, I think he wants to develop your character and purify you and, and use you in the days ahead. Suffering purifies us. Now, sometimes we get power and we're not ready for it, but God will, He'll adjust. He'll help us in those days ahead. James goes on and says, Whatever is good and perfect comes to us from God above, who created all heaven's lights. Unlike them, He never changes or casts shifting shadows. In His goodness, He chose to make us His own children by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his choice, possession. That's who we are. God has given that to us. And these verses 17 and 18, all of this just kind of flow through this theme and filter of trials, tribulations, and suffering. But God, he comes back to all God's good and perfect gifts, come from above. Dr. Henry Thiessen says, from all this about, he's talking back about Job. Remember an hour ago, whatever it was, I started with Job. He says, from all this, we learned a lesson that affliction is intended by God to prepare us for greater prosperity. And I don't mean prosperity in the sense the world uses it, but for greater strength and power and privilege. We tend to say that our wisdom and strength have brought it to us. Therefore, it is often necessary for God first to bring us very low before he can lift us up. So I'm going to move forward. How, how should we respond to suffering? How do we look at suffering in our lives? Let me just give you a couple of questions asked. First, is it from the enemy? If you can identify, is this from the enemy, the suffering that I'm undergoing? Because some suffering, trials, tribulations are actually attacks from the enemy, right? Would you, are you with me? Okay, they're attacks from the enemy. If they are, then by the power of God, you rebuke it. You stand against it, you fight against it. Is it a result of living in a fallen world? People, there's some suffering you're gonna undergo. It's just part of the, it's part of living here. You know, if, the, if, if a volcano suddenly exploded from beneath the church this morning and we perished, some people would look and say, ah, I wonder what fullness did to sin to make that happen. Part of it is just creation is fallen right now. And part of living in a fallen world is bad things happen. It's unexplainable. Do you know what that kicker of Job is? To me, Job never gets an answer. As to why he suffered. Job never knows. Why, why did all this happen? Except he's even more pure. More a man of character. Stronger at the end than he was at the beginning. But God never. When Job is asking. <laughs> when Job says, why am I undergoing this? Why am I going through this? God, speak. I want to hear from you. God says, oh, you got some questions for me. Okay. I'll answer your questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Wait a minute. That's not the answer I'm looking for. You know what I mean? He doesn't ever really get, I don't think, a satisfactory answer to why he undergoes suffering. You may or may not as well. You could say, is it a result of my own sin? Listen, if you've gone out and spent all your money and you've gotten in huge credit card debt and you've, you you've, mortgaged yourself to the hilt then don't turn around to me and say oh i'm suffering i don't i don't have anything i don't have any money to spend what you can say that to me it's fine we'll help you i mean we'll help navigate your way through it but your position is a result of your own sin in this case but what i'm trying to say is not all suffering that you're undergoing is a result of sin because it may be being used by god to develop character prepare us for power and cleanse the church. There are many passages on suffering and problems. You know, do you remember when Jesus goes to heal the blind guy and they say to him, this is their their take on things, right? They go to say, hey, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this guy or his parents that he is blind? Do you remember the question? Their question had a presupposition that his blindness was caused by somebody's sin. And Jesus says, hey, nobody's sinned. This is for the glory of God. Does that not cause you problems? it, It always troubles me. Do you mean this guy's been blind for all these years so that now he can get healed so that God can get glory? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? In our lives, it would be helpful though to know that there's suffering that's really all suffering, wherever it comes from, really, whatever the source, even though we may battle against it, even though maybe we repent of it, even though we recognize the state of the fallen world, it's still being used to develop my character, prepare me for power, and to cleanse the church. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Lord, I pray right now that you would just develop within us your person, your purpose, your character. God, we thank you. For those who are undergoing suffering right now, I pray, God, that you would Move in their hearts, move in their lives. I'm not trying to minimize suffering, but at the same time, Lord, may we be a people who recognize why this has occurred and what you're doing. One of the great hymns of the church was written by a man named Horatio P. Spafford. Spafford was a famous attorney well-known attorney in Chicago in the 1800s. Spafford uh, was married to a woman named Anna, and they had four beautiful girls. Um, In 1871, there was a major fire in Chicago that destroyed most of the city. Most of Spafford's business interests, including his law firm, was taken by the fire. Shortly before the fire, he had a son as well who died of scarlet fever. A couple of years after the fire, they had been really working to put their lives back together, but they decided we needed, they needed to get away. So uh, he uh, sent his wife and children uh, on a trip to London, and he was going to join them later. At some point on the travel overseas, there was a ship collision in the Ville du Havre, which was the name of the ship, Sunk, and... Horatio P. Spafford, back in his city of Chicago, receives a telegram from his wife, Anna, that says, all is lost. What shall I do? In the ship sinking, as you know the story, many of you, the four daughters all died. Anna, his wife, survived. Spafford, who's already lost a business, lost his son, lost his children, travels to meet his wife in London. On the way over, In the vicinity, the story goes many different ways, but in the vicinity where the ship sank, he went out and started praying and went back to his cabin and pinned the words of that famous hymn that we've all sung, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well." It's well with my soul. Now, many of us, we're never going to have those kind of sorrows. I mean, we've got our own troubles and our own suffering, but the measure that he underwent, some of you have. You've experienced incredible loss, incredible suffering. But what happens when we undergo suffering and we persevere through it, claiming it is well with our soul, God develops our character, and then hope springs up like the flowers that you see blooming all around us. The final verse of that song talks about the trump shall resound, and I'll bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Because God is purifying you and preparing you for his throne. Your throne. His throne. Your ruling and reigning in his kingdom. So as we sing this hymn today, As we reflect, may this be a a time where you you say, Whatever I'm undergoing, whatever the circumstance, whatever the situation, here's where I stand. It is well with my soul. Stand and let's worship the Lord.